they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome. Welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Tuesday, January the 21st. Wow. Wow. Time flies. So here we are on a Tuesday afternoon. And it's amazing that we're back. To, Mary, we're still glad to have you back. You're back <laughs> on your feet. Now, I'm a little under the weather, but we're going to hang in there. Mary, I just love, I mean, we've got so much to talk about with the Bible, but every day you take the readings on Tuesdays here from the Gospel of the Daily Mass reading and then give a little bit of an explanation. Can we do that now? Yes, we can. And that's the Gospel today is from the Mark, mm-hmm. the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. As Jesus was passing through a field of grain on the Sabbath, <clears throat> his disciples began to make a path while picking the heads of grain. At this, the Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and his companions were hungry? How he went into the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the offering that only the priests could lawfully eat, and shared it with his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man, Mm. for the Sabbath. This is why the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through fields of grain and the disciples are hungry. So they're picking off the heads of grain. What's interesting is that in the Old Testament, it's allowed for that people can walk through into the grain field on Sunday or on the Sabbath. That was Saturday. Sabbath, the seventh day was theirs and pick off heads of grain and eat it. But wasn't what was not allowed for on the Sabbath was harvesting. So the Pharisees are taking this little act of mm-hmm. getting a snack yeah. <laughs> and turning it into an act of harvesting. Mm-hmm. As in, Jesus doesn't take that point up with them. Okay, He doesn't take that point. He doesn't show, point out that hypocrisy. But what he does say is, he says, well, wait a minute. David, when he and his men were hungry, David was out on campaign. His men didn't have anything to eat. They went into the temple. Yeah. And they ate what was called the bread of the presence. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting is there are... There are scholars who claim, oh, you see, Jesus misquoted the history in the Old Testament because it was not Abathar who gave David and his men the bread of the presence. It was actually Abathar's father. Hmm. Ah, but was Jesus using Abathar as a way to warn the Pharisees that, you see, what happened was, yes, Abathar's father was the one who gave David the bread of the presence. Hmm. And Abathar's father protected the kingship, okay? Abathar's son, however, I mean, Abathar, the son, didn't. And Abathar, the son, and his priesthood are taken away. And so Jesus is using his name as an example to the Pharisees that, you know what? The descendant of the king of David, the true king, is here now before you. 
And you're rejecting him and resisting him. And if you continue in this, you're going to lose your priesthood. It was a warning. Hmm. It wasn't a mistaken quotation of history on Jesus's part. Okay. He's using Abathar as an example for the Pharisees to warn them. Just as Abathar resisted the kingship in his day, so too you resisting the true king of David are going to lose your kingship in your own day. And they did. Mm -hmm. They did when the temple was destroyed. But Jesus also says something else. He points out something. Okay, what is the Sabbath all about? All right, what is this Sabbath? Okay, God rested on the seventh day after he had created. created creation in six days, and he rested on the seventh, right? Because God was so tired, and he needed to rest, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or is it just that, oh, well, people get so tired because they have to work all week. So God gives them a day when they can just lay back and kick back and do whatever they want, whatever relaxes them, whatever makes them feel good. That's all good. That's all okay. Is that what the Sabbath is about? No. Jesse and Terry were talking about at the end of the last show that this Sabbath is an entering into the rest of God. We're supposed to be entering into communion with God. God is showing us that we need that day of prayer. We need that time of prayer. And what is prayer? That loving conversation with someone who loves us. Mm. It's entering into the Lord's rest. The Sabbath isn't about pursuing my own pursuits or doing whatever it is I want to do. The Sabbath is about entering into communion with the Lord. How can we know the rest of the Lord if we don't enter into communion with him? If we don't converse with him and know him, how can we even know what his rest is? You know, it's like like Jesus when he, he goes to the well. I mean, his disciples went off to get food in the town and Jesus is sitting at the well and, and, um, they bring food back and he's like, oh, well, that's okay. I don't, I don't need it. But Lord, don't you need to eat? And he said, I have food that you know nothing of. Mm-hmm. And they thought, oh, somebody brought him something to eat. Mm-hmm. We didn't know it. No. And here we went all this work and no, my food is to do the will of the father. And this is the way it is with the Lord. Do we understand what it means to enter into his rest? The Lord never rests. As a matter of fact, right now, God is consciously, actively keeping all of creation in creation. He's thinking of every single one of us and every single cell of every single one of our bodies and every single function of all of creation. He is actively keeping it all in order. He's not resting. Well, that's the point when we say that God loves you so much that if God stopped thinking about you, you'd cease to exist. But Mary, you mentioned about prayer and the fact that uh, it's necessary to spend time in prayer. I mean, put it on the natural level, a husband and wife, if they never spend time with each other, we never communicate, we don't, you don't talk to me, what kind of relationship am I going to have? Exactly. None. It's going to be a non. Exactly. So, so I ask myself and our listeners right now, am I taking the time where we become silent to have God speak to us? This book, The Day Is Now Far Spent by Cardinal Seurat, his point is this, that we've become too noisy. Yes. And the world is so noisy that we can't think about God. Right. And I think it ties into what we're reading right now, right. and that is we need to be silent to listen. Yes, and we pray. Need, and we need to enter into that Sabbath rest, and we need to cut out the noise. 
and you need to turn off the TVs yeah. and the radios right. and shut down your phones yep. and put them aside. Every call that comes in, you do not need to answer. I remember once years ago, a priest said in a sermon, he said, do you know that you really do not have the right to barge in on anyone any time of the day or night without being invited, without asking, without setting up an appointment? Mm-hmm. And yet television, I mean, excuse me, telephones allow us to do this. We can call someone. We don't know if they're sick. We don't know if they're at an appointment. We don't know if they're at mass. We don't know where they are, what they're doing, but we can call them. And now we have the cell phones that we carry with us. So it's like no, nowhere can you be free from the phone. We need to stop. We need to stop and, and reconsider and recollect, recollect ourselves. And, and remember, practice of the presence of God. Practice of the presence of God is not the pinnacle of the spiritual life. It's the basic foundation. That is to consciously be aware of the fact that God is always aware of us and present to us. And we need to be present to him. And it's interesting because the first reading today is from the book of Samuel. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it points out how the difference between man's thoughts and God's thoughts. Mm-hmm. God has told Samuel to go to Bethlehem and anoint from among Jesse's sons a man who will be the king of Israel. And so Samuel comes, and of course Samuel comes, and everybody knows Samuel's the seer, and all of Bethlehem is a little bit worried, and they're like, uh, have you come here? Is this peaceful? What are you doing here? You know, they're a little bit nervous. And he said, I, I came to sacrifice to the Lord. Get ready. And Jesse and his sons need to come too. So Jesse comes, and Jesse presents seven sons before the Lord, before uh, Samuel. And the Lord tells, and Samuel, of course, the first son, he's, he's tall, he's handsome, he makes a great appearance. And Samuel's like, ah, here he is. This is the Lord's anointed. And, and the Lord says to Samuel, he says, um, do not judge from his appearance or from his lofty stature, because I have rejected him. Not as man sees does God see. Because he sees, man sees, the appearance, but God looks into the heart. And so Samuel's like, okay, it's not him. So Jesse presents seven sons, which means Jesse had eight. Mm -hmm. Because he presents seven. And Samuel says, well, the Lord's anointed isn't here. Uh, Do you have another son? (laughs) Oh, yeah, the youngest. He's out. He couldn't couldn't be him. He's out there (laughs) keeping the sheep. You know, he's the the runt of the litter here, you know. And they bring David in. David, a youth, handsome to behold, ruddy complexion, because he spent his time out in the field. And the Lord said, he is the one. Hmm. And so Samuel anoints him. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Now, did that keep David from sinning or falling or making mistakes? No. But David was a man after God's own heart. This is what God says about him. Why? Because when he does sin, he repents. What a compliment. Yeah. What a compliment. I want to be that. A man after God's own heart. This is what God said about David. He was humble. He was repentant. He didn't exert himself. He didn't put himself forward. And he he acknowledged the Lord's. And when when sin was pointed out to him, he repented. So we want to think like God does, not like men. Absolutely. And we want to pray. And how do we do that? By reading his word. Exactly. We have to be in touch with his word. And spend time in prayer. We're going to come right back with the Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We thank you for your support. 
back in a moment. This is Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This March, VMPR, in association with the Catholic Resource Center, will be hosting a special conference for the Adoramus Society. Adoramus at the Triduum, a conference on the spirituality of the Triduum liturgies, featuring speakers Father Joseph Fessio, Dr. Anthony Lillis, and Christopher Carstens, addressing such topics as developing a liturgical spirituality, the spirituality of Holy Thursday, the spirituality of Good Friday, and the spirituality of the Paschal Vigil and Easter season. It all takes place March 14, 2020, at the historic Sacred Heart Chapel at 381 West Center Street, Covina, California, 91723. You can register online at vmpr.org or call now at 877-526-2151 to reserve your seat today for Adoramus at the Triduum. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we come to understand. According to St. Augustine, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. May God grant us a strong living faith in Him and His divine plan of salvation and help us to believe so that we may understand. selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites the Terry and Jesse Show, and they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow, that's 80%. Realestateforlife.org, 877-LIFE-US-1. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, welcome back to Bible with the Barbers. Thank you, Matthew, for introducing us there. And uh, we have, um, I want to deal, there's some questions, you know, I, I do answer the app listener questions, and I try and be thorough. And um, this last week has been a little bit rough. I I was sick obviously last Tuesday and it wasn't just Tuesday. I, it took me a while to recuperate. So I've been trying to get to those questions on the apps, um, but I haven't been able to get to as many this week. And I, I just wanted to treat a couple of the questions with a little more um, thoroughness than what I did in the answer. So one of them was uh, someone had asked about the head covering and women covering their heads. And so what do we have here? In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, um, St. Paul says, I command you because you remember me. I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. Mm-hmm. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband and the head of Christ is God. 
Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her wear a veil. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. So the woman ought to veil her head because of the angels. Paul goes on to say, and he goes on to say, nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man nor man of woman. For a woman is made for man, so man is now born of woman, Mm. and all things are from God. Mm -hmm. So one thing, people are like, well, well, is it a law? Do I have to do it? Here's the deal. In the 1917 Code of Canon Law, the church did make it a law that women had to cover their heads in church. In the 1983 Code of Canon Law, that code was not included. It wasn't abrogated. And so many canon theologians... Canon lawyers? Canon lawyers, thank you. Canon lawyers would argue that because it wasn't abrogated, it still stands, and so women should still cover their heads. What's interesting, though, is that new code of canon law didn't come out until, I don't know, 1983? 83, almost uh, 18 years after the Second Vatican Council. Right, And, and women stopped covering their heads earlier than that. Right, in the 1960s, late 60s. Right, the, the women started taking off the veils before. It, 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 you know, it, it's almost like a word got out. The church is reconsidering this, and mm-hmm. so maybe, and it's like, but, but what is really going on here? Yeah. Well, what was happening in the West in the 1960s? <laughs> we had this whole revolt called Women's Liberation Movement. Yep. But it wasn't about liberating women. It was about enslaving women to their passions and making them free to no longer be women. But is that freedom? If I become something I wasn't made to be, is that freedom? Is this a key? Nope. No. So what happens if I try and unlock a door with this? Won't work. It's no. It's a writing instrument. It's made for writing on paper. That's when it's free. When it's used for the purpose it was intended. If I want to unlock the door, I need a key. Um, or if I've lost the key, then I need someone who knows how to <laughs> pick the lock. Mary, I'm going to jump in and say I think also as a husband, as your husband and as a man, I saw a uh, devaluing of women from the sexual revolution and as making them like objects rather than to be loved, but to be used. And so this idea, uh, I, I, you both, we both of us heard Alice von Hildebrand say, we veil sacred things. And I think it's such a compliment for women. We, we veil sacred things because you're bearers of life. We even, we veil the tabernacle because it's the Eucharist. Right. So, so the connection on a woman, a woman carving her head with, with a veil is really appropriate because of her dignity. Right, and it's it's we veil the sacred things, and by the way, the church never changed the fact that the the chalice and the tabernacle are still supposed to be veiled. Yeah, the Vatican II didn't change nope. that. Everybody, wake up, you know. Um, but the deal is, yes, sacred things are veiled, and what is set aside and consecrated is veiled. And 
what we have, um, Paul, now what, in 1976, there was a document that came out from the Sacred Con- Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith called Inter Insigniores. It was 1976, mm-hmm. which, which said that, um, you know, the Catholic Church teaches that the that the Paul's Council on Veiling Women was inspired by the custom of the day. Because this was a matter of discipline, not doctrine, mm-hmm. the Pauline directive on covering and uncovering the head are subject to change. They are no longer binding on men and women today. Okay, so it's not binding, it's not a law, but what what's what's really going on? What's going on underneath the surface? As we said, the veil started disappearing in church before nineteen seventy six. That's right. The veil started disappearing in church before the new Code of Canon Law came out in 1983. So it's not about the law. Is it maybe about rebellion against God with the whole, you know, feminist movement was supposedly a feminist movement. But there's and there's true Christian feminism that recognizes there's a difference between men and women. Okay, Paul is not putting down women or making them second class citizens. He's acknowledging the order that God has made. God made man first. He made the male of the species first, and he made woman second. Now, that was because that's the way God did it, right? Okay, and there are lots of good reasons for that. Man needed to discover who he was and that he needed a partner, and he needed to not take advantage of that partner or see that partner as an object to be used, but as his equal, who was a cooperator with him in building the kingdom of God here on earth. That's our primary purpose. And so men and women are equal, It's not about dignity. This isn't a thing. It's not a power play, and it's not about dignity. But they have different roles to play. Absolutely. I would also concur to say that as we forgot about what the Mass is, after the Council, many people, uh, we had an exodus of people even going to church on Sunday, and we're down to 20% now. And when we don't understand the dignity of the Holy Mass, that also made a connection of, like even dressing for mass properly, right. wearing a veil. As, the, as we kind of got loosey-goosey, then we started taking off things that were like, not. they felt like, well, it's not a big deal. I can go to church with my shorts on. I can go to the beach after that. And unfortunately, we weren't told uh, many times at the altar by the priest, I'm just saying that's what happened, to uh, give give us direction on that. So pe- we kind of took the easy way out. And the easy way out for women is forget about the veil. Right. And and the reality is, is does this reflect an inner attitude? Oh, it does. And, and, and we have to ask ourselves this. You know, oftentimes, and maybe not just often, our, ex- our external yeah. actions should reflect... Mm our interior attitudes. And what happens is, and this is Bishop Sheen made the point. He said, you know, if you don't live as you believe, yep. you're going to be condemned to believing as you live. And, and, and right. so our interior attitudes can inform us about how we should be acting exteriorly, mm-hmm. but our exterior actions can also affect our interior attitudes. Mm-hmm. So if the mass is no longer sacred, then why do we have to dress up to go to church? Do you remember? Does anybody remember out there? Oh, you know, days. Your Sunday best? Oh, we've heard that. Dressing up in your Sunday best. And I've seen so many people, poor people, who aren't even Catholic, who get who still get dressed up in their Sunday best to go to church on Sunday and hear a sermon. They're not even going to be present in the physical presence of our Lord. They're pre- he's present spiritually. He's present in his word. So he's present spiritually to them. But he, it's not the same as the Eucharist. 
And yet they're going to hear a sermon preached by a preacher, which is beautiful and good and teaches them how to live the word of God. And these people dress in the best that they have yep. because they're, they're giving that time to God. And they understand we need to spend beautiful. time with the Lord. And it's, again, it comes back to this Sabbath rest. Do we understand that Sunday is about entering into a communion with the Lord? Mm-hmm. And do we dress as if we're entering into a communion with the Lord? Or, you know, people... Is what you wear to the beach appropriate for wearing to Holy Mass? No. Is it appropriate to wear to a wedding feast? No. Well, every Holy Mass is a wedding feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb has begun and his bride is prepared to welcome him. The Mass is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Yes, it's Calvary, but it's not the historical Calvary in the sense of Jesus is being crucified again. It's the risen, glorified, ascended Christ Continually, the victim who immolated himself, who is now now no longer dying, lives in the presence of his father, continually offering his act of immolated love. Mm -hmm. The lamb who was slain still bears his scars. He's in his father's presence in heaven. And the liturgy is celebrated perfectly in heaven. We have an imperfect liturgy here on earth. But we remember the price and the price that Christ paid. His scars are not gone. You know, it's, it's like, oh, well, he was crucified, then we can forget about the cross. No, never. He still offers that act of immolated love in his risen, ascended, glorified state. And so we should act accordingly. Our interior disposition toward the Lord at Mass should be one of humble adoration. We first adore him. Humble thanksgiving for all that he has given Humble expiation for all the sins that we and the whole world commit. Humble petition for the graces that we need to be conformed unto him. But with an attitude of humility, Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of accepting death, even death on a cross. Accursed be anyone who was hung on a tree. So he looked to the world like a curse. They all thought he was cursed. Good Friday wasn't very pretty. And you know what? we can enter into that mystery and help be part of the redemption because when our actions are united to Christ on the cross, they become infinite because any action that we unite to Jesus Christ takes on his merit. And Jesus Christ gives his merit to that action. So we unite our actions to him. So women, you can wear a veil because remember, it hasn't changed that men and women are different that God made man first, that he made marriage, that marriage is an image of the invisible Trinitarian God and also an image of the relationship between Christ and his church. And the church is subordinate to Christ. And a woman isn't subordinate to a husband in the, t- in the sense that she's a child and she has to obey his every whim. No, they're partners. They're co-equal because they're both human, both created, but they have different roles to fulfill. And woman is still the bearer of the mystery Amen. of life. Amen. Women bear within themselves a great mystery. And Oh, yeah, we think we have it all figured out because we have science and all kinds of stuff. It's like, you know, we don't have figured out as much as we think we do. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And yes, it's more than appropriate to veil yourself, but to humble yourself and everybody's internal. First of all, if you're going to veil yourself externally, 
try and match that on the inside. Well said. When we come back, I had a question from Father James Martin, a tweet that he gave. One of our listeners wanted to take our take regarding the inerrancy of the Bible. Is it true? I hope so. We'll be back with that question. This is Terry Barber, and Myra Brown is with me. Myra, welcome. Hi, Terry. I am so happy to be here with you today because I am up to something that I think you'll find very interesting. Tell me, what is it, Myra? Well, I want to give away a DVD, your famous three-hour talk about how to share your faith with everyone. And do you know how I'm going to do it? Tell me. Well, me and my friend Annie Joe are calling everybody to talk about monthly donations because that is how we keep this station alive. Absolutely. And so every person that answers either our email or answers our phone call will get that talk. And they can get it by calling 877-526-2151. And just tell us how you heard about it because I really am excited about Myra's project because we want to have Virgin Most Powerful in every state in the union. Yep, and we're going to do it with your help. So answer the phone call, answer that email, and I look forward to getting your prayer intention then. God love you. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. Buying or selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites The Terry and Jesse Show. And they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow! That's 80%! Realestateforlife.org, 877-LIFE-US1. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you, Jesse Romero. God bless you, brother. Mary Danielle, I have to make a plug here because you're talking about veiling women at Mass, and we have a wonderful event coming up March 15th at the chapel here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. It's the Adoramus Conference. We're going to be studying what we call the Easter Tritium. I know you'll be there. I'll be there too, God willing where we're going to take a, a look at the liturgy from a historical perspective and from a biblical perspective and from what the church teaches with Father Joseph Fessio and many others. We're bringing some experts in, so I would encourage you, our listener, yeah. to go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and check us out and go ahead and, and register for this event, or you can call 877-526-2151. You're going to learn a lot about the Mass and the Easter Trinium. But Mary Danielle, Father James Martin, he's one of the Jesuit priests. He's, he's a, um, 
He's the editor of America Magazine, which I don't read because it's kind of progressive, I'll be honest with you. But he's always... heterodox? Yes. He's always in the uh, news, and he's one of the priests I pray for on Thursday nights when we pray for priests and bishops and the Holy Father uh, to really help them understand their priesthood. And I would say that a tweet he gave out regarding the Bible, I just scratched my head and I said, what did he say? Is he questioning the biblical teachings what as being accurate? I mean, that would, to me would be like an attack on the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible could be wrong on certain topics. And I thought it was rather bold. But let me read the tweet to you and then take it apart and say, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, this is not what the church teaches. He says, where the Bible mentions same sexual behavior at all, it clearly condemns it. So he acknowledges that the Bible, the church and the Bible condemns it. I freely grant that. <laughs> right? But then he said, the issue is precisely whether the Bible judgment is correct. What did he say? I'll repeat it. it he says, the issue is precisely whether the biblical judgment is correct. The Bible sanctions slavery as well, and nowhere uh, attacked it as unjust. So what do you say about this, Mary? Is he right? Well, I think it's interesting, the question he asks yeah. about slavery. Yeah. Does the Bible really sanction slavery? Is that what the New Testament says? Remember, God in the, the scriptures are God. It's pedagogy. What's that word mean? The, a father fathering yeah. his family. Yeah. Pedagogy. Mm-hmm. When you teach your children, your little two-year-old, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't teach them, you know, the Pythagorean theorem yet. You know, you teach them how to count first. Mm-hmm. You, you show them circles and squares and, and different geometric shapes. You don't teach them the Pythagorean theorem or you don't teach them algebra at the age of two, four, six, eight, ten. You know, they're not there yet because you have to build things on. And, and the deal about slavery, is he really right that the Bible never condemns slavery? That the Bible actually, it's like he's saying, oh, well, the Bible says it's okay. Does it? Does it really? Well, what, what do we have in the Bible about slavery? Well, uh, the Hebrews were slaves, and did God approve of that? No, he takes his people out of Egypt. He showed clearly he didn't approve of slavery. But in the New Testament, um, remember, um, there's, there's a letter to Philemon. Mm-hmm. Does anybody remember the letter to Philemon? It's a short one. It's a little tiny letter that <laughs> Paul wrote, and it's regarding a certain man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus had become very useful to Paul in his imprisonment, and Onesimus was... A runaway slave who belonged to a friend of Paul's by the name of Philemon. And Paul is sending Onesimus back. Oh, well, see, Paul obviously condones slavery. He's sending this runaway slave back with a letter. But what does he tell Philemon? He said, I want you to have him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Mm -hmm. There you go. (laughs) As a brother. And, And Paul also says... He says, in Christ Jesus, there are no longer slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. What is he saying? He's saying that we all have the grace of Christ. Okay, so number one, that the Bible condones slavery. I, as a biblical theologian, I would differ with James Mart- Father, Father James, James Martin, God have mercy on him, on that issue. But there's a bigger issue going on Big here. time. Because he's acknowledging that the Bible condemns Sexual activity. Homosexuality. Homosexual activity. Yeah. 
homosexual activity. That's right. It's wrong. It's sinful. Just like adultery is wrong and sinful. Just yeah. like fornication is wrong and sinful. Right. Just like masturbation is wrong and sinful. Right. Because it's the improper use of the faculty that God has given. So his question is, can I trust the Bible? Well, can you trust the Bible, Father Martin? Well, that all depends. You see, Father Martin, here's the deal. The Bible didn't drop down out of heaven. God didn't send a lightning bolt to say, if you don't believe this and read it, I'm striking you dead. Boom. Although people were struck dead for defying God. Mm -hmm. Read again in the Acts of the Apostles, the story about Ananias and Sapphira for trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. They were struck dead. Okay. But where do we get the Bible? Which came first, the Bible or the church? You wouldn't have a Bible, Father Martin, if it weren't for the Catholic Church that Jesus Christ founded. Jesus Christ only founded one church, everybody. One, the Catholic Church. Yes, he founded it. And the reality is, is that all of the other Protestant churches broke off. And other religions, yeah, they were men's attempt at trying to grapple at who God is and where he is and how do we worship him. But, but God himself revealed how we should. And the church has some very specific things to say about the Bible. Mm -hmm. Number one, in the Second Vatican Council II documents, the church says that the primary author of all of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. So now let's rephrase Father Martin's question in light of what the church teaches. Instead of saying, but can I, can I trust the Bible? What is he saying? Can I trust the Holy Spirit? Exactly. Can I trust the Holy Spirit? And underlying that, you know, if he says, well, no, I, you know, I sure I can trust the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's God. I have to trust God, right? Well, okay. Well, then what are you getting at? That the church is wrong? That the church couldn't tell us about the Bible? Well, if it weren't for the church, you don't have the Bible, Father Martin. So what do you have? What, what? What authority does Scripture have at all if you can't trust it? There's no authority there. So he has some huge problems that yep. he's, he's bringing up for himself. He, he, he's, he's, he's tearing out, and this is very, very interesting. Our faith, the Father of the Church, does anybody remember the scene at the foot of the cross? Mm. When the soldiers, they divide Jesus' cloak in four parts, but then the garment that he wore against his body. They look at it and they're like, there's no seam here. This garment is woven from a single thread. Mm -hmm. If we cut it, the whole thing is going to unravel. So we need to cast dice to see who gets it. The fathers of the church have seen in that scene the seamless garment as the representative of our faith. Our faith is a seamless garment. And when you start tearing at one thread, mm -hmm. you unravel the whole thing. Yep. And I had this demonstrated to me in high in college, very graphically. Tell us. And the professor didn't, I don't think, intend to to do this, but he ended up doing it. He it was a church history class, and every day he would open the class with, "I'm not denying infallibility, but mm. I'm not denying infallibility, but." He started every class. He didn't start the, the church history class off with reading the Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. He started it off with that statement. Mm -hmm. And every single day he opened class with that statement. And after two weeks, I was 
I was like, I was becoming cynical and snide and just interiorly, my whole in interior being was being in, in just absolute turmoil. And I didn't understand. And I remember going to the chapel and there was, this was at a Jesuit college, by the way, this was a Jesuit teaching class. Um, one of father Martin's brothers in Christ. And, um, I looked at this life-size, over life-size crucifix. It was bigger Mm -hmm. than life. Mm -hmm. And I said, Lord, you're losing me. And I don't even know why, but I know that I'm losing my faith. Because my mother had taught us, if you ever think you're losing your faith, get down on your knees and humble yourself before God and beg him not to let you lose it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, help me. I don't want to lose the faith, but I know I'm losing it. I'm losing you. I'm losing any desire for you. I'm losing something's wrong. Well, um, a couple nights later, I was walking back from class with Father Fessio mm-hmm. from a different class. And I made some really snide remark about the church defining infallibility when she did. Right. And Father Fessio simply said, and he called me by my middle name, not my first name. Oh, yes, Danelle. And Jesus Christ wasn't divine until the fourth century. <laughs> and I kid you not, the light came back on instantaneously. It was like, oh, my word. And I knew it, it all came to my, it was all, it was all just like in a flash. Yeah. Oh, the church defining Christ's divinity didn't make him divine. He was always divine, but it became necessary for the church in the historical context of the fourth century in the Arian heresy to define not only his divinity, but his humanity, because the Arians wouldn't give him either one. And, and so, yeah, the church didn't define infallibility in the 1800s because all of a sudden she'd be, oh, we need to believe in infallibility because we need to establish this authority because of the Protestant Reformation. And no, it's because for the first time in history, people were no longer accepting that the church could teach us the truth. And so she defined infallibility when she did. And it was like, oh, my word. A truth is true because God revealed it. And it's true because it comes from God. And the church defines it as so if and when the historical context makes it, because when the church defines something, she locks it in. And that dogma can no longer develop. Okay? It, it limits some of the development of that dogma. And, and so the church is, so Father Martin here is actually questioning the authority yeah, of the church. That's right. Yes, he's in questioning the authority of Scripture. He's questioning the author of Scripture, who, by the way, the church teaches us is the Holy Spirit. And he's questioning the authority of the church to make pronouncements. Mary, I want to recommend a series by Dr. Scott Hahn, Can You Trust the Bible? Absolutely. Six to eight hour course that yes. you go to Steubenville to, to go to. I brought it to you on a disc. If you want that, I'll have Anthony uh, email that to you. Uh, you. Give us a little donation to cover the cost of doing what we do to get it to you. But you can go at just call 877-526-215 and tell Anthony you want... The inerrancy of Scripture by Can You Trust the Bible by Dr. Scott Hahn. I hope that will help you in a big picture understand this Bible that we call God's Word. And I think you need to understand that because of people like Father Martin, unfortunately. (laughs) Hey, we'll be right back with much more on the Bible with the Barton.
Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. or selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites the Terry and Jesse Show. And they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow! That's 80%. Realestateforlife.org 877-LIFE-US1 Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, welcome back, and thank you again, Matthew, for introducing us there. And, and uh, Terry stepped out to do a few things he needs to do in the office, and um, it seems to be the day of questions here. So, um, again, remember, it wasn't the Bible first. The Bible didn't exist except that the bishops of the Catholic Church got together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and said, these are the books. The Jews didn't have a canon. They didn't have a specific canon. They weren't in agreement. There was no Jewish canon of Scripture. And so it was the Roman Catholic Church, the church that Jesus Christ founded, and he only founded one church. And we need to remember that. And yes, we can trust the Bible because the Bible is God's holy word. And God doesn't lie to us. Remember, to say that we can't trust the Bible is to say that we cannot trust God, all right? And God doesn't lie. And here's the problem. We are liars. All men are liars, right? And the problem is we like to think that we like to project our own sinfulness onto God. Oh, well, God's just acting in his own interest. God's just doing this on his behalf. God's just, you know, he's selfish. He's self-centered. He's like, all of our sins we like to project onto God, and it's not true. And by the way, that's what the enemy wants us to believe. We have an enemy. And yes, we're warned in Scripture. We're not fighting with men. We're fighting with powers and principalities. We need God's help. That's why we need to pray every day. It's, it's not an option. This, this idea that we can just, you know, ignore God and people, God never forgets about us. He loves us. He loves us continuously and always. He loves every creature he ever made, even the creatures who reject him. He loves everyone. God is love. That's all he's capable of is love. God is love. But the deal is, are we capable of loving? You know, when the, when the, the devils fell, when the, when the good angels 
when a, a third of the angels decided to rebel against God and became devils instead of angels, they lost their ability to love. And not only did they lose their ability to love, remember something. Jesus says of Satan that he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning, he was a liar and a murderer. He lied. He lied to himself by saying, I will not serve, because he was made to serve. And so he doesn't fulfill the purpose for which he was made. And when he falls, he takes with him others who believe his lie. And in so doing, he kills them spiritually. They live in eternal death. They don't live eternal life. They live in eternal rejection of goodness, in eternal absence from the good. And this is what he tries to, to seduce us into. So we pray for people who um, make mistakes, and especially for ourselves, and we pray for sinners that we be converted. <clears throat> and we pray for people, especially the priests and the, and the bishops and our Holy Father, that they will teach us the truth. Remember, the church is not the arbiter of the truth. She's the guardian. The, the sacred deposit of faith wasn't made up by the church. It was given by Jesus Christ to the church, and she's supposed to safeguard it. To Peter, she says, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you declare bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you declare loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Because he gives to Peter the sacred deposit of faith, and he will give Peter the Holy Spirit. Just like the Holy Spirit is the primary author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit too, will guide the church. But we can't hear the Holy Spirit if we're not praying, if we're not sacrificing, if we're not being silent and entering into the rest of God. So we need to take time to rest in God and to pray and sacrifice. And we need to give up the things of this world if we want to be able to enter into God. The more we empty ourselves and it's not just entering into God, it's God entering into us too. The more we empty ourselves of the things of this world, the more God can enter into us and take residence in us. Have you ever thought about the question, where does your soul reside in your body? Your soul, you know, what are the powers of the soul, the intellect and will? But what is the soul? Philosophically, the soul is the life principle. So where is the soul? Is it in your head? Is it in your brain? Is it in your heart? If it's the life principle of your body, the soul is in absolutely every living cell of your body. Absolutely every one. The soul is in your whole body. And all of the faculties of your body are there to remind you of the needs of the soul. St. Thomas Aquinas said, you have eyes to see because your soul needs to see God. You have ears to hear because your soul needs to hear the word of God. You have a mouth to speak because your soul needs to praise God. You have hands to serve because your soul needs to serve the Lord God. Every faculty of your body tells you about a need of your soul. When your body is hungry, your soul is crying out for God, for the hunger of God, to know God and to come more deeply in union with God. And that can only be satisfied in prayer. The things of this earth will not satisfy. By the way, even the needs of the body are only fully met in God. Because we were made by God, we were made for God, we were made for union with God. And 
when people question our finality or want to believe that we have a finality here in this world, then they begin to get our whole reason for existence wrong. We're not here in this world to have pleasure. We're not here in this world just to feel good. We're not here in this world just to relax and have a good time. By the way, we're not here just to be entertained. We're not here just to work. We're not here to be wage slaves. You know, people like to talk about slavery. Well, how many people in this world are just wage slaves? Well, I have to go to work every day. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time for family relations. I don't have time for anything but to go to work and then be entertained. I work so hard at work and I'm so stressed out by work that I have to come home and be entertained. What's wrong with us? We were made to be in relationship with one another and we were made to be in relationship with God. You know, it's interesting because one of the other questions that was asked me by an app listener was Isaiah 55 verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What's implied there? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What's implied there is that there may come a time when he can't be found. There may come a time when he's not near. Well, how could that be? If we reject God and push him away, we're not going to find him. If we fill ourselves with sin and the things of this world, he can't be near to us. Because he can't enter in. It goes on to say, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let us return to the Lord that he may have mercy. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And what's interesting is he repeats this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. The same thing he said to Samuel. In the book of Samuel, when Samuel thinks he sees the Lord's anointed before him when David's oldest son comes in. We need to turn to the Lord and let ourselves be filled by the Lord. And yeah, we need to do it now. We were made to be a praise of God's glory. We were made to glorify his name and to build up his kingdom here on earth, to do his will. This is why he made us. He made us for union with himself. God, God who exists in himself, as a trinity of persons, as a a unity of love and life, as a communion of love and life from all eternity, who has no need at all, creates a creature, creates creatures, the angels and men, to share his glory with so that they can participate in his own inner life, in his own joy. Love is diffusive. It wants to give itself away. God so loved the world that he gives his only son. He doesn't just create us. When we sinned and turned away from him, he sent his son, his own son, his only begotten son, the second person of the blessed Trinity becomes man. He takes to himself a human nature. Why does he take to himself a human nature? He humbles himself. Bishop Sheen points out, it's more humbling for God to take on the nature of his creature than it would be for me, a human being, to become a dog in order to redeem all dogs and teach them how to be good. Okay? It's more humbling for God to become man. And yet he does this. And he doesn't just become man. He doesn't just take on this human nature. And when he does take on this human nature, he redeems everything about human nature. By the way, from the first moment of conception 
until the moment of natural death. He redeems everything, suffering, rejection, being lied about, being hated, being misunderstood, everything. Jesus Christ didn't come to eradicate human suffering. He came to fill it with his presence. And fill it with his presence, he does. He didn't come and live in a palace. He didn't have an easy life. His mother's eight months pregnant, and he has to travel in her womb from Beth, from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a back of a donkey. And I don't think a donkey had four-wheel, well, he does have four-wheel drive. He had four-leg drive. But he didn't have shock absorbers. Okay, so you got this little, you know, donkey who lumbers along and you're kind of bouncing. And I'll tell you what, when you're eight months pregnant, you don't be want to go on on a bouncy ride. You know, it's not real comfortable. She was nine months pregnant. But but the point is what God is near to us, but he's only as near as we allow him to come. So we need to seek him now, right now in the present moment, because this is the only moment we have. And we need to seek him and give up our sins Because God cannot enter in where there is sin. So we need to give up our sins and we need to turn back to the Lord and be righteous before him. And so, yeah, seek the Lord now today, right now, get down on our knees. Lord, come into my life as my Lord and Savior. You, if I'm baptized, then you, Lord, came in to live in my soul in my baptism. I want you to renew in me right now the grace of my baptism. And I want you to come and live in me in its, in your fullness. I invite you in. I give you permission to work in my soul, to accomplish all you want to accomplish, to glorify your name, to build your kingdom, to do your will, to carry out in me all that you desire to carry out. This is why we exist. So don't put it off till tomorrow. We only have today. All right. God is good and he loves us and he wants to forgive us, but we need to ask forgiveness. So yes, the Bible is trustworthy. And yes, women are still the bearers of mystery of life. They're still sacred and they're still a mystery. And we should treat all human beings with dignity and respect. And we should be respectful in the presence of God and know that he is God. And even though he became intimate with us and a personal friend and he wants a friendship with us, he still remains God. He still remains completely other. And we should adore him and come before him in an attitude of adoration and humility and receptivity to receive from him all that he wants to give. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers and with Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for your support, especially for your prayers, your sacrifices, and all the sufferings that have been offered up for this apostolate. We hope you'll join us again next week on Bible with the Barbers. St. Faustina's Prayer for Priests O my Jesus, I beg thee on behalf of the whole Church, grant it love and the light of thy Spirit, and give power to the words of priests, so that hardened hearts might be brought to repentance and return to thee, O Lord. Lord, give us holy priests. Thou thyself maintain them in holiness. O divine and great High Priest, May the power of thy mercy accompany them everywhere and protect them from the devil's traps and snares, which are continually being set for the souls of priests. May the power of thy mercy, O Lord, shatter and bring to naught all that might tarnish the sanctity of priests. For thou canst do all things. Amen. Virgin Most Powerful 
pray for us. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.